Hello and welcome to The 40 Minute Mentor with me, your host, James Mitra. Here at JBM, we think one of the best things you can do for your career is to find a great mentor who you can learn from and be inspired by. So for those of you who are looking for this mentorship, we launched this podcast. In each episode, we'll be sharing career stories, advice and mentorship from some of the most inspiring people we know. And we hope that you can apply some of these learnings to your life and career. I'm always keen to get feedback, so if you have any thoughts once you've listened to this interview, just drop me a line at james at jbmc.co.uk. When it comes to careers, there are many more options out there than there used to be, especially since I set JBM up seven years ago. The days of getting a university degree, joining a grad scheme and staying with one company for 15 years are long gone. And speaking to clients and candidates every day, I get to hear all about the different paths people take on their career journey. And with rising university fees and increasing opportunity, we're seeing many companies start to offer apprenticeships to enable talented young people to follow an alternative career path. At the forefront of this major shift across education and employment is today's 40-minute mentor, the amazing Sophie Edelman, who is co-founder and president of White Hat. While Sophie has a very successful academic background herself, She saw her acceptance into Cambridge as a lucky break, and in some ways an unfair advantage over all the equally talented people who, for whatever reason, didn't get the same opportunity. As Sophie explains in today's episode, this helped her shape her life's mission to create access to opportunities for everyone, no matter the background, social status or upbringing. That's where the idea for White Hat came from. Sophie and her co-founder Ewan launched White Hat, a tech startup building an outstanding alternative to the traditional university route to level the playing field and open opportunities to work with great companies to more people rather than just a small selection from well-known universities. Sophie's passion for creating equal opportunities, changing the way the university system works and topics such as social mobility is truly inspiring. In today's conversation, we dig deeper into a whole host of topics, including the problems Sophie sees with the university sector and how her own experience has shaped her vision to change it, why she founded White Hat and her experience of starting and growing a mission-driven business from just herself and Ewan to a team of over 140 people and her experience of raising $60 million in a Series A funding round in 2019 and her advice for others looking to emulate her success. I really enjoyed this conversation with Sophie And as somebody who followed the more traditional route into the world of work, it was fascinating to hear about the opportunities available to young people these days and how White Hat are leading the way in opening up more opportunities to help people fulfill their potential. So if you're interested in working for a mission-driven startup like White Hat, or you're a leader looking at diversifying your talent pool, or perhaps you're currently considering whether to go to university, I hope you're going to take a lot from this conversation. So with all that said, please sit back relax, and enjoy my episode with the incredible Sophie Edelman. Sophie, welcome to the 40 Minute Mentor. Hi, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. I wonder if we could start, as we always like to, with a 30 second review of your CV, if that's all right. Yeah, of course. So um, my background is I'm from Lincolnshire. I grew up in Lincolnshire, went to a state school and was really fortunate I managed to get into a great university. So I know that's one of the things that you you flagged, but that helped me get an opportunity at Goldman Sachs. So I started my career in investment banking. From there, I went to work at Egon Zender, which is an executive search firm. So I've had this 
thread of talent and recruitment throughout my career because after going back into finance briefly, I then went to run the European business for a company called Hired.com. I was the first international employee. There was an opportunity to build a kind of entrepreneurial track record on somebody else's dime, as it were, <laughs> sort of test the waters there and, um, and build out a great team. Hired is a tech recruitment plat- platform for software engineers and then joined you and then we started White Hat. Amazing. Thank you very much. Well, we're going to spend most of this conversation talking about the amazing work you're doing at White Hat. But I wanted to start at the beginning. You obviously have a very successful academic background. You, you got a first from Cambridge, you've done an MBA. How did your university experience shape your career? And, and did you always know that you were going to go down that entrepreneurial path further down the line? So I feel I was very lucky to get into Cambridge. I think it changed the trajectory of my life. It opened my mind to the kind of possibilities that were out there and it really opened doors to opportunities. But I do feel it was a lucky break, not something that I was destined to do. My school didn't really encourage people to apply to Oxbridge. In fact, I was told to apply to a particular college because they let in more state school students. And I've always felt that that lucky break was in some ways unfair. And that's one of the reasons we started White Hat, because we felt that you needed to be able to level the playing field so more people had access to opportunities at great companies. It wasn't just a small pool of people who were fortunate enough, lucky enough to get into a very small number of universities. So the whole premise of my career has been, how do we create more access to opportunity? How do we create more social mobility without people having to follow an academic route? Now, I was fortunate because I actually really enjoy studying. I'm good at exams. I like the academic path, but I've worked with so many people now who are just as ambitious, just as bright, just as capable, who don't enjoy that path, who aren't academic. And I feel like my mission in life is to create access to opportunity. Amazing. I think it's admirable. Um, but, but given that, that experience that you've had and your passion for apprenticeships, what would be your advice to your 18-year-old self now if you were weighing up whether to go to uni or not? I get asked this question a lot. Would you do an apprenticeship or would you go to a university? And I think it's a difficult question because, as I said, I, I was the kid at school who would always do their essays three days before the deadline, who really enjoyed the academic side of things. And I was good at it. But I also have really loved my working career and I've learned a huge amount. And, and so I think it would be quite a difficult decision. Actually, the thing that would make that decision for me if I was you know, starting back again was the fact that university just costs a lot more than it did back then. So I didn't really have to make a choice about whether I could afford to go or not because my debt after I left university was about £12,000, which still took me almost 10 years to pay off. But it was a different point in time and there really wasn't another option I think if I was starting at this point now and I had the opportunity to go and do a digital marketing apprenticeship at Google or maybe a data science apprenticeship at Santander or even you know go and study business and work at a great company I think I would really pause and make you know I'm not sure I would make that decision in the same way Um, now what university did give me was this access to an incredible community and access to opportunity and I think that's one of the things we've we've taken from the university experience and brought into apprenticeships which is if you're going to create an outstanding alternative something that sits alongside university as a true alternative you've got to create that social capital those networks those access to opportunities the career development the social networks the friendships that that we all remember from the university days. So, you know, what have I taken away from university? Well, it opens doors. 
and it's given me a friendship group that has become a professional network throughout mm. my career. Mm. No, that's really, really interesting insights. You talked about your, you know, the work you did. You started your career in investment banking. You'd spent a uh, time at leading search firms, Egon Zender and, and Hyde.com. Um, before we come on to talk about White Hat, how did those experiences help your career? And what advice would you have for... People looking maybe frustrated headhunters that are looking to pivot <laughs> into a career. Not that I'm thinking of doing that myself, but okay. I'm sure there are people listening that might be. Okay, so, you know, the, the truth is I had a horrible experience in investment banking. I really didn't have a, a great experience of of working at Goldman. I think it was a very difficult time. I joined in 2007. In fact, I joined just before the markets crashed. So Not great timing. Not great timing. And, and I was an analyst, so, you know, my job wasn't at risk, but other people in the team went through redundancy rounds. And that was a quite a stressful time to be in investment banking. Plus, I didn't really know what I was getting into. I'd never met somebody who was an investment banker. I had no idea what the job entailed. And that, you know, that's one of the reasons why I really focus now on how do you help people make the right decisions about their career. But that made me question, you know, the path that I thought I should go on. I think I've always been somebody who's, who's sought credentials, badges along the way. And, and, and it, it made me question whether that was the right approach. When I went to Egon Zender, I didn't think I wanted to go into executive search. Like most people, I kind of fell into yes. it. Somebody persuaded tale. me to go. Yeah, somebody persuaded me to go to an interview. I was like, I don't want to be a recruiter. I went along and I met some of the most amazing people who worked with CEOs and boards and helped them hire incredible talent. And I thought, this is an amazing opportunity to learn how do you hire great people? How do you assess great people? How do you build great organizations? Which, when you're 21, 22, 23, is an incredible learning curve. And I worked with people who were really kind, who could teach me a lot. And what that has done is given me insights into how great organizations are built. Mm, no, that's really interesting. And, and Given that I'm slightly biased, given what, course, what, what right. I do at JVM, but I've seen a number of people like yourself that have actually started a career in exec search or recruitment and gone on to do amazing, completely different things. But I think it does give you a really interesting grounding. So that's great to hear. It left with some positive uh, impressions. Definitely, definitely. Um, coming on to White Hat then, for those of our listeners that don't know what White Hat is or what, what you guys do, can you tell us a bit about what led you and your co-founder Ewan to start the business? Yes. So White Hat is founded on a mission to create a diverse group of future leaders. This goes back to this point that, you know, we both believe deeply that we need to create access to opportunity, we want to level the playing field and give people the ability to go and work in the best companies in the world, whether they go down an academic path or a non-academic path. And for us, the, the way to achieve that is to build an alternative to university that is truly outstanding. And we think apprenticeships can be the mechanism to do that. So White Hat is a tech startup building this outstanding alternative to university, which starts with apprenticeships. And apprenticeships are, for those of you who don't know, it's a long duration training and skills-based learning program, so applied learning, that you do whilst you're employed. And so you get paid while you're doing it, you get great work-based skills, you get a brand on your CV, and you're getting trained at the same time. And many of us have been through jobs where we've had a de facto apprenticeship, right? Uh, most people's jobs are learnt on the job. And so an apprenticeship gives you a more structured way to develop that and get a credential at the same time. Brilliant. I'm interested, how did that come about in the first instance that did, did you guys just meet in uh, randomly did you just pretty randomly oh, right. pretty randomly so Ewan had been working in a business that was helping long-term unemployed get into work and felt that there was 
an opportunity to try and get people better outcomes than just, say, temporary employment. And then the apprenticeship levy was announced and there was this kind of push to create more of a, an apprenticeship structure within the UK system. I came across apprenticeships because actually my husband's German and he did an apprenticeship. And so that planted the seed for me about how the apprenticeship route can make people really successful without necessarily going down the academic route or that you could create an equally good system that you could pass back and forth between. But my time in recruitment also showed me that a university has become this credential that people latch onto as an indication of someone's potential. And so there was all these ideas that were milling around. And then you and I were actually introduced by his wife, Suzanne. She saw me speaking at an event and said, oh, can I connect you to my husband? Because he's talking about these ideas too. We met in a coffee shop. I just thought, okay, I'll give him half an hour of my time. So I was, you know, he was interested in the tech world. And uh, a half hour coffee actually spiraled into sort of a three hour session where we were sort of drawing all over the table, well, not actually on the table, but <laughs> on pieces of paper at the table. And that's where the idea for White Hat was born, which is how do we, how do we build something that's truly aspirational and that can change the system? It's a brilliant mission and clearly meant to be that random yeah. coffee that turned into a, a, an incredible business that you've created. And I guess in a relatively short amount of time, you've already worked with over 120 companies. I know that some of your clients include Facebook, Google, Zoopla, amazing brands. So in those early days when you were getting the business off the ground, and I think it's safe to say maybe there would have been some skepticism about the apprenticeship model. How did you go about approaching those types of big businesses to work with you in the early days? The great news right now is that all companies are having problems around skills gaps, diversity, churn of, of graduates. They're all having these problems. So we could actually latch on to the value that an apprentice can bring. So generally apprentices, when they join as career starters, stay for on average four years, whereas a graduate normally leaves after 18 months or two years. So we could talk about the value of, of bringing an apprentice in, in that regard. Secondly, the kind of people who go to universities tend to come from, you know, a smaller pool, something like 60% of people on graduate schemes went to private school in the UK. So, you know, you, you've got this funnel of the same kind of candidate going into businesses. And so if you're trying to solve the diversity problem, you've got to fish out of a different pool. And skills, we already know that the jobs of the future are going to look very different from those today. And people are going to need to develop new skills, be reskilled throughout their career. And lots of companies are grappling with that issue. And then you throw in Brexit and suddenly you start thinking, oh, well, if we can't bring talent in from outside the UK, how are we going to grow that talent in the UK? So all these kind of macro trends came together. And when we started talking to the boards and C-level at organizations, we were able to talk about the problems that they were really grappling with and present apprenticeships as a solution to that problem. Brilliant. And it, it really does play into so many conversations that I've had with clients over the years around, as you said, kind of sk the skills gap, attrition and diversity and inclusion for sure. So I, I, I can totally see why you guys are doing so well. Can you tell our listeners some of the success stories you've had? Because I know there have been many, but what, what really stand out to you in your first few years in business? So what's been really exciting to me has been some of the apprentice stories where people have gone into an organization that have never considered taking on apprentices before. And those young people have actually changed people's perceptions of what an apprentice is, the kind of person who does an apprenticeship and the impact they can have. So a really good example is one of our apprentices who was at 
Facebook, Zayna. So Zayna was hired as a digital marketing apprentice. And not only was she a great digital marketing apprentice at Facebook, where everyone else in the team had six or seven years of experience, but she also helped Facebook actually access diverse talent. So she built out this BAME network. She went to speak to parents in different communities about the value of apprenticeships. She's been a massive advocate, not only for apprenticeships, but for women in tech and BAME people in tech. And she's really changed perceptions both within Facebook, but also externally. And I think that's the kind of power that bringing in more diverse talent into an organization can have. So she's a really great example. And then we've had people like William, who is a, a ambassador, I think he calls okay. himself. <laughs> William, when you meet him, is this wonderful, wonderful apprentice who has a stammer. And he's not only become more confident and, and added a lot of value to his team doing an apprenticeship, but actually he's been able to capture the attention of his CEO, who has started sort of promoting the work he does as a ambassador and the leadership role he's played within the apprentice community. And so you know, these are some fantastic success stories that you yeah, can point to. Yeah, amazing. Great stuff. You recently wrote a really thought-provoking article on, on LinkedIn about increasing diversity within business, which you alluded to. But I think, um, you know, it's, it's clear the benefit that you can get from, from, from White Hat. There's clearly a really good business case there for increasing diversity. It would be great for our listeners to hear your thoughts on this and how your explanation for how apprenticeships can help improve diversity in general. So when I was working in a recruitment, both at high and also Econ Center always had companies coming to us and saying, we want to hire more women into leadership positions. We want to hire more female software engineers. We want to hire more BAME software engineers. I mean, it's, you hear this all the time, right? I heard it this morning. It's right. Monday. And <laughs> it's one of these things. And, and the problem is they go, okay, can you show me a shortlist of diverse candidates? In, in fact, we only want to see diverse candidates. If you can show me 10 female software engineers, we'll hire all of them. And then you have to break it to them that that talent just doesn't exist. And the reason that talent doesn't exist is because if you didn't really engage with, say, science or maths at school, you probably didn't go and study software engineering at university or physics. So therefore, that group of people who are studying that subject at university is less diverse. And then those people go into a job and they progress through. And even if there were you know, 50% women at the beginning of the career, they probably dropped out at some point because it's such a male white male dominated career path and so when people come to you and say we want somebody who's a mid or senior level female software engineer you have to turn around to them and go those people just don't exist or at least there's a very small number it's very competitive to hire them so what's great about apprenticeships is we say if you invest in a pipeline of talent you can actually build those kind of diverse candidates from the inside you're you're seeding that talent pool brilliant no thank you very much i think this is a particular point that I'm going to get some of our clients to, to listen to this because this is a, a regular occurrence this sort of conversation and I think it does take a, a longer term view but um, it's great to see that it, it's working um, in practice so thank you for that. Um, I wanted to come on to talking about building White Hat uh, and a bit more about the entrepreneurial life that I know you're leading. I know firsthand that starting a business has its challenges. You're often spinning many plates and every day is different. But can you give our listeners a bit of an insight into what a, a typical day, if there is one, uh, looks like for you as a co-founder of this business? Busy. I think <laughs> we were just talking before about 
how difficult it is to run your own business, but also how difficult it is to run your own business and be a parent at the same time. You're always trying to shuffle between lots of different competing priorities. So I think that's number one. It's really hard and really busy all the time. The thing that I talk a lot about is context switching. You know, I'm having to always switch between a conversation about product strategy or operations or firefighting, you know, a hire or getting somebody over the line who we want to bring into the business or compensation discussions. You're constantly context switching, which is quite exhausting. And actually some advice that I've had is that you've got to make sure that you create the time and space, not only to make sure that you are okay, that your your mental health is protected, but also you're creating space to think about some of the big issues. Because if you don't create that time for more strategic discussion or more strategic project work, you end up focusing all the time on being reactive to the fires that are, are, you know, need fighting. Mm -hmm. And that can become your entire day. I mean, you can spend your entire day dealing with your inbox. So you've got to actually carve out this time and protect it for thinking about strategy and also taking time for yourself. Yeah, something I'll be honest, I've struggled with myself personally, and I know a lot of people do. Is that something naturally you're quite good at in terms of decompartmentalizing those pieces of the day? No, okay. No, Um, so I'm, I'm pretty good at prioritizing, but it's just hard. It's just, it's really hard to compartmentalize different parts of your life. I think the one thing I do try and do is make sure that sort of between sort of 6.30 and 8 at night, I'm fully present for my kids yeah. because I don't see that much of them during the week as it is. So when I'm there, I need to make sure it's quality time. And then when I'm having one-on-ones with my team, again, I think one of the, the most important things I can do is give them my full attention and remove roadblocks and solve their problems and support them because if they're successful then we as businesses are successful so I really try and make sure I've got that focus at the right times yeah that's that's great advice and and that really resonates with me I think one thing you you alluded to around giving yourself a bit of space to almost get out of the day-to-day nitty-gritty reminds me of something my my mum used to say I was a terrible crammer the opposite to you actually last minute you know ahead of exams but she always said just stop and take some time and she always said leave room for inspiration and that was that whole idea of just giving yourself some time just to let your brain kind of settle and then just and go with it so it reminds me of that but you've you know despite the busyness um it's clearly been very successful and and you recently raised back end of last year i'm right in thinking um is it 16 million dollars yeah we raised 16 million dollars series a amazing and from some incredible investors including index ventures how did you find that fundraising experience i know you've worked in investment banking so maybe you've had an insight into what that sort of thing looked like but what, what advice would you have for others that are maybe starting this fundraising journey and how did you find the experience so the first thing i'll say is that there has sort of been this glamorization of venture-backed businesses that raising vc funding is somehow an end in and of itself like it's a badge of honor to have raised money from top investors and when you do raise money you do get access to some some incredible people like you know our board members danny reimer um, knuckle mandam they they really do add some fantastic insights into the business and they provide that sort of checks and balance the challenge that you need Because being an entrepreneur, even with a co-founder, can be quite lonely and you need people to both support and challenge you. But I do think we need to move away from seeing raising VC funding as an end in and of itself. So my advice would be really determine whether or not you want to go down that path before you start having conversations with VCs. Because it does put you on a treadmill of growth where you are constantly chasing the next growth target in order to raise more funding. So you need to think about that. But in terms of the process itself, 
my advice would be like, be very thoughtful about the kind of partners you want to work with. There is this assumption that, you know, you want to go out and raise money and get the highest valuation. Well, you get a high valuation from raising a lot of money and giving away a lot of your business. You need to be really thoughtful about what you want to get out of this process. So, you know, if you work with an investor who has particular experience in an area that could add value to you, if you work with a fund where they can provide you with ongoing capital as you grow, these are the questions you should be asking, not just trying to go out and spray shoot and meet with everyone. And sometimes the investors that have the best brand names are not going to be the most valuable to you. And it is a long-term relationship. Yeah, that's great advice. And it's also a huge time drain, isn't it? Going through that whole process, like you said, the, the investor sort of treadmill. So I think that's anyone listening that's that's going through that process at the moment, I'm sure will take a lot from that. I know that the, the fundraising to some extent has helped fund the growth of the team and, and you've been hiring a lot and, and growing really quickly in three years. How have you gone about doing that? You obviously have a background in recruitment and headhunting, so that, that must really help. But how have you gone about building, structuring the team? And do you hire apprentices yourself? It's a bit of a mouthful, that. Yeah, apprentices, apprentices. yourself. <laughs> so I actually read an article recently that said second-time entrepreneurs often spend more time up front thinking about the culture, values, and sort of processes of their business. And even though you know, neither you nor I had actually started a business before, we've kind of lived within that entrepreneurial mindset for quite a long time. You know, when I was running the European business for Hyde, I was GM and I got to make a lot of decisions myself. And so this is kind of my second time through the journey in that regard. So one of the first things I focused on was recruitment, making sure that we had the right values in place, that we were hiring the right people, that we were really diligent in our approach to hiring. We actually used something called the WHO method, I'm obsessed with reference taking. I take lots and lots of references. I take very deep references on people because I do think the past experience is the best predictor of future success, which comes from my Egon Zender days. Yeah, it's like part yeah. of their mantra. <laughs> and so I, I focused on that really early. And I think that has created a, a good bedrock for hiring great talent because as we all know, A players hire A players, whereas B players hire C players. So we want to create a team of amazing people. And so we've, we focused on that right at the beginning. I think if you compromise on that early on, you'll never be able to build an outstanding team. Yeah, that's, that's, that's really great advice. And it's clearly you've created a business, very forward thinking, very inspirational. And we speak to people literally every single day everyone that calls us wants to work for a mission-driven business and someone that's making a difference to the world which I think is very admirable but it's I guess you probably get a lot of applications as a result and it's not always easy to to filter through those what do you look for personally when you're hiring for your team we mentioned a players but what what does that actually mean and how do you assess potential new recruits so we're not perfect on this by any means. I think motivation is 50% of it. So I don't really like cover letters, but I do like people to answer questions about why do they want to work a white hat and why do they want to do this role? Because I think the, the two things are separate but linked, right? So why do you want to work for this business? Why are you excited about what we're doing, the problem we're trying to solve, and how do you think you can actually add value? And the second thing is, why do you want to do this role? Because it's all very well and good loving what we do, but if you don't actually want to do the job you've applied for, you're not going to be happy. Yeah. So, you know, making sure that people think about those things. And then when we're assessing for sort of excellence, I want people to demonstrate that they have achieved excellence in some part of their life. They've done something that makes them special. And that doesn't have to be work-related. It could be in their personal life. It could be something, you know, that they do that lives to their values. It could have been when they were a kid, they raised some money for, for a charity and they're really proud of that. I want to know what thing makes that person special. 
I also really focus on values fit. So, you know, I talked about our company values, but we use those values to assess whether somebody's going to be the right fit for our organization, not culture fit. That's really important. And I'm really looking for sort of intelligence, but not necessarily academic intelligence, like how easy is it for somebody to connect the dots? I look for people who want to develop themselves, who are humble enough to know that they don't know everything, but also have confidence enough to know that they can deliver. And then, you know, looking for their superpower. What, what makes them special? What makes them unique? What can they bring to the table that nobody else can? Great. What have you found the most challenging of that process? Because it is, those are exactly the sorts of things I guess you want to try and find in, in individuals, but it, it takes a lot of time. And, and we all know that the hiring, especially when it's your baby, is, is, is not always easy and, and it doesn't always go right. So what have you found the most challenging part of that process? And to any founders or business owners listening, what advice would you give them trying to hire the right talent? Oh, it's, that's, I mean, we could talk about this yes. for hours. We could <laughs> talk about this round two, yeah. <laughs> I think the, just going back to this point about how do you spot excellence, I think that in particular roles, it's really hard to determine whether somebody's actually good or whether they're just good at selling themselves. Yeah. And this is where I think references come in. So lots of people give offers subject to references. I never give an offer out until I've taken references. And the reason for that is because there is some legal sort of gray area if you make somebody an offer and then you retract it after you've taken a reference, but also because I see references as a core part of the recruitment process. So I want to hear from their managers, their peers about not only what did you think of this person, would you hire them again, but actually what happens when that person's angry? I make that presumption that they get angry and I want to understand the behaviors they exhibit. When they led this team, did they deliver on time? What learnings do you think they would have from this? How self-aware are they? I want to understand how that person actually operated in other environments. Because whenever you ask somebody for references, they always give people they think you yeah, give a good reference. So you've actually got to get under the skin of it and really understand what you're getting. Because some of those things are coachable, some of those things are manageable, but you actually want to get the true impression of that person. You want to know what they're going to be like when they join your business. It makes a lot of sense. It's kind of amazing that most people make offers and then do the references yeah, afterwards. And, I uh, so I, I, I'm going to take that myself and make sure I do that going forward. And I, I'd suggest anyone listening takes that on board as well. We are almost at the end, Sophie. I've loved chatting to you. I've got a couple more questions. Okay. And one which is very important given the name of this podcast is around mentorship. So I know that you've been a volunteer mentor for Ambitious Ladies in Tech and Tech Stars for a few years. So can you tell me a little bit about what it is that you do as a mentor and what your mentoring style is? So I have been part of structured schemes that connect you to somebody to be a mentor. And I've also been mentored myself. But I think that the best mentoring relationships come from a more organic relationship where somebody sees themselves in you and wants to invest in your development. So the, the mentoring relationships where I've been the mentor and I've got a mentee, the ones that have been the most successful are those ones where I've sort of seen something of myself in that person, wanted to support them and grow them and, and give them maybe more candid feedback than they've been given previously or, or some real talk. Yeah, which is so important. It's so important. So I think... The, the best advice I can give is somebody's looking for a mentor is don't go and ask somebody to be your mentor. Go and ask somebody if you can pick their brains on a particular subject or you can get some careers advice and see if you've got that connection, that chemistry there. See if they offer to sort of meet up with you again. And if that happens, then follow that relationship more organically because I think that's the way you're going to get the most authentic mentoring relationship. No, great. No, thank you for that. Do you have a mentor yourself? You mentioned you've been... You 
been mentored perhaps in the past is that something you actively seek now or always uh, organically yeah. kind of comes about so I, I definitely seek mentors I, I do have several people I look to for mentorship probably more in specific areas where they can support me so you know built particular relationships with senior leaders who I look to on you know for advice say on how to build a people organization or how should I work with an executive team or how do I think about my career so I've got different mentors for different things but they have evolved over the years because you find that well I found that you know over time sometimes I've outgrown mentors or our paths have diverged so I think it's something you should always be thinking about and seeing where you build those connections and relationships yeah I completely agree and um, I found our advisory board is very helpful because we purposely made it very diverse we've got one from search one from a tech scale-up one from a sustainability business you know it's just one Bring from a bank yeah right? they all do and it's really it's really helpful and the best bit about it is the, the candid feedback as you said I think it's it's super important even though it's not always easy to hear no you need somebody to hold up that mirror so you can actually hear yourself well, hear what you're saying yourself. That yeah. doesn't make sense. Yeah, I know what you mean. <laughs> <laughs> and coming back to, to White Hat and, and the future, you've had amazing success over the last years and congratulations on that, by the way. I think it's what you're We're creating. We're still very early in the it's, journey. It's very, exciting very... though. It's exciting. And you're doing, and everyone I speak to that's had any interaction with White Hat says great things. So I'm a genuinely big believer in this. And I'm, another time we'll do round two and want to go further into a few of these topics. But I, I assume the next 12 months is a, a lot to do, a lot more to do. Um, so can you tell our listeners a bit about the next year ahead for you personally and also for White Hat? Yeah, so we're, we're about 140 people now and we're still hiring quite aggressively. So, you know, the, the people side of things is going to be a really big part of our focus as a company because how do you maintain kind of culture, systems, processes as you scale when everyone doesn't know each other's names, where you can't all sit around the kitchen table and talk about stuff and where people's roles become more defined. So that's a big piece of, of the journey. Sales growth and then how do you deliver on that sales growth is a big part of what we're doing. And then we're thinking about expansion both across the UK but also internationally and thinking about the strategy of how we'll do that. So some big, some big meaty challenges to get our heads around over the next year. Very exciting. Well, we wish you the best of luck Thank with, you very with much. all of that. And finally, to wrap this up, for any of our listeners that might be thinking about a career move, what one final piece of advice would you leave them with? I think when you want to make a career move, you should look for people you can learn from. I, ultimately, the best decisions I've made have been where I've gone to work with people that I feel I can learn from and that, that's helped me grow as an individual so my one piece of advice is you know forget the brands forget the credentials start looking for people you can learn from and opportunities for personal growth amazing thank you very much Sophie it's been an absolute pleasure I really hope that you enjoyed that episode of the 40 Minute Mentor and if you did please leave us a review and tell your friends so we can continue to bring you awesome interviews from inspiring entrepreneurs and business leaders. Please also feel free to reach out at info at jbmc.co.uk. Thanks again for all your support.